I'm Olympia Duhart, and I'm a professor of law at Nova Southeastern University's Shepherd Rock College of Law. This is LST's mini-series about women in the law. Today, we are recording at the John Marshall Law School in Chicago. We're moderating a roundtable discussion about women lawyers who have additional social identities that have been traditionally marginalized in the legal profession. Now we're going to meet our participants. I'm Kyle McEntee, executive producer of this show and executive director of Law School Transparency. Allison Bethel, director of the Fair Housing Legal Clinic at John Marshall Law School. Aurora Ostriaco, past president of the Chicago Bar and shareholder at Valentine Ostriaco and Bouchel. I am Leotis McRae III. I am clinical fellow at the John Marshall Fair Housing Legal Clinic. I'm Prava Palacharla. I'm a third year assistant state's attorney for Cook County. I'm Patricia Mendoza, a judge in the Circuit Court of Cook County, sitting in the Juvenile Division. Hi, I'm Salvador Cicero, former president of Hispanic Lawyers here in Illinois and a practicing attorney here in Chicago. And I am Kimber Russell, one of the producers for Law School Transparency's Women in the Law series. And I would like to open up our discussion right now with a question that's for everybody, so please feel free to chime in. And that is, if you believe you're being discriminated against, does it matter to you what part of your identity is subject to discrimination? Well, certainly sometimes uh, I may not be sure uh, whether it is because I'm a woman or because I'm African-American, but either way, I find it offensive and how I deal with it may depend on the circumstances, but I, I can't say that I feel any less offended because of uh, the identity that is being targeted at the moment. And, and I would agree with that earlier on in my career. I mean, I was discriminated as a young lawyer, um, not knowing exactly what I was doing when I actually did know what I was doing as an Asian lawyer, because when I graduated, there weren't that many Asian lawyers, so they thought I was a paralegal. So I agree, it is offensive, whatever part of yourself is that's involved. But I think at the end of the day, it's how you respond to what is said to you and how you can turn that around to educate people. Does that mean that there's some strategic value in being able to distinguish between what's racism or what's sexism? You know, there may be. There may be because you need to be able to, if you're going to focus on, on racism, let's just take that for instance, some people may feel strongly, more strongly about that than they would on sexism, right? One may be easier to deal with than the other. I don't have any facts to support that. But for racism, that's always a very difficult issue to deal with. You talked about an individual response to discrimination based on gender, but I wanted to ask the group about what institutions can do to respond to discrimination. Well, I had an experience, and I don't know if it's institutional, but I worked at Cook County Legal Assistance as a young lawyer, and I had an attorney who wouldn't, when I had been handling the case, and it, when it came time to settle, he didn't want to talk to me. He wanted to talk to my supervisor. And I don't know if it was because I was A, young, B, a woman, or C, Latina, I just knew he didn't want to deal with me. And I knew it was one of those three or maybe all three. And I know that my supervisor refused to talk to him, basically said, you deal with her. And I mean, that's a small thing. I mean, but if you have backup from the place that you work at, people who will have your back and support you, I think that's really important. I really agree with that. Um, I had an experience in my one of my previous assignments in a court assignment. I had a first chair who is not exactly supervisor, but sort of the lead in the courtroom that we all look to. And he is 50-something Irish 
attorney that had been a prosecutor for over 20 years. And I am a 27-year-old Indian prosecutor of two years. So people definitely have different responses to us. And something that I found really helpful was his support of me. Lots of times people would go to him to ask him questions and he would direct them to me. And they would return to him to follow up and he would direct them to me. And I have seen him the third time say to people, you know, she's smarter than me, just go talk to her. And just to have that you know, even if it's not true, just to have that uh, support <laughs> is really helpful yeah. because it, it does it, it shows that he respects me. So they should also respect me. And that's something that definitely worked for us. From an institutional perspective, it has to be a top down approach because like what Judge and Prava had indicated, someone validating and bringing support and giving them support makes a difference. When you have diversity, inclusion is a very important aspect of diversity. It has to be diversity and inclusion. So in a big organization, if you actually have you know, a white guy who's at the very top embracing diversity and embracing you, that gives validation to the importance of you, the importance of having a woman in the leadership or having you know, you know, an Indian or an Asian um, in, in, that, in that level. And, people pay a little bit more attention when you've got someone that has the power to actually say, you have to do this. Yeah, I, w I would agree with that. I've spent a good number of years as a civil rights lawyer. So I have sued corporations uh, and uh, I have represented individuals. And one of the things that I, I see so many times with corporations that are sued, and no matter how the case is resolved, is uh, denial. Uh, they find it uh, really, you know, hard to believe that this would happen uh, in their in their company, and think it's really an isolated incident. And so, from that experience, I think one of the suggestions and one of the things that I would say is that there really institutions need to have really definitely what Aurora said uh, from the top down, and it needs to be an ongoing commitment that is longstanding. It's not something that just we're going to do six months of training following this lawsuit. We're going to have uh, all of the board members uh, go to this CLE or this conference. It needs to be something that is a sustained effort within the corporation to effectuate the change and to keep it going. I mean, I've worked in the government. I worked at the American Bar, and now I have a small firm. I find that it always helps to start the conversation because I found that in resolving conflict in various settings, many times we assume that the people say things to offend you, right? People say things for many reasons. Some people are offensive without realizing they're offensive. And if that's the situation, at least there is an opportunity for change. And the only way you can bring that up is by opening up talks about that. So what Allison is saying is, is very important in terms of having forums where people can speak about the issues that are important to them because the person on the other side may think to themselves, you know what, I hadn't thought of that. I didn't realize that doing these things that are maybe very acceptable in their culture or whatever are really hurting somebody else, are really bothering somebody else. Now, if they refuse to change, then you have an issue, right? In my experience, most people are at least willing to think to themselves, you know what, I, I hadn't thought of that, and now my perspective's changed. And that actually is a very good point when it comes to unconscious bias, which people don't understand and realize that they have that biases in them, but really it's, it's in everyone. 
And we just need to be able to address it and bring it out and understand that that exists. So we talked about a lot of success stories, but a lot of times these initiatives fail. So why do you think these initiatives are often unsuccessful? I think it's because there really isn't a real commitment. There's a, oh, somebody's made a big deal about it. We got to deal with it. Let's deal with it. Okay, checked. You know, we've done the diversity training. We've done the whatever. You know, we've checked all the boxes that they're making us do. But unless there's an ongoing commitment to this, it's, it's not going to work. How would you measure or how would you evaluate an ongoing commitment? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> but whatever is done when the initial thing is brought up has to continue to happen. Can't just be like, well, we did that. Mm-hmm. We've got to right. keep doing it. So, Judge, would it be fair to say you're talking about not putting it in a silo? We did the diversity stuff on exactly. Tuesday. Exactly. It's not full it's, integration. Right, exactly. Right. It has to be a full integration because it permeates and it cuts across everything that we do. In the legal profession, I think a metric, if you're going to look at metrics and whether it could be effective or not, is look at the partnership level. How many women partners are there who are diverse or male partners who are the? There are a lot of male partners, but diversity (laughs) is on there. I just corrected myself on there. But, I mean, if you look at that, I mean, that's a good gauge. The percentage of, let's just say, women or minorities is probably a good percent, 45, but you're not going to see the equivalent in partnership level. Same thing with corporations. How many CEOs or C-suites are, you know, women or minorities as compared to the population? Very small. You will never have the same equivalent as the percentage in the population. I think they're difficult conversations to have. I think they are difficult to sustain. I think one thing that can help is uh, having diversity officer or someone who is, is looking at it constantly. It's also something that, that changes. So there's sustained conversations that you have to have. And you have to, to really inculcate it to your entire organization from the top down, from the inside out, in order to make it work. You know, if I can just add one thing, I'm, I'm sitting here getting angry as I think about it. Usually these things, it keeps happening not from top down, from bottom up. When we finally had enough and we snap and we're like, okay, we're going to organize, we're going to make this, you know, bring this issue to the forefront. Then the powers that be are like, okay, we've got to deal with it. Okay, we've calmed them down. Now we're going to go back to the old thing. And that is really frustrating. Even now, we're still, it's still happening. Even now, the Latino bar is going to the chief judge going, we need more Latinos. Why is this still happening? We are still bringing the issues to them as opposed to it being top down. Can any of you talk about how you manage your identity at work? I mean, there is some tension between being a professional black and a black professional, right? <laughs> um, and how you manage that identity at work for fear of standing out or desire to fit in. As a young lawyer, and I started practicing with a private firm, and, and I was uh, one of only two women, and, and I was the only black lawyer there. And of course, I wanted desperately to fit in, and and I I joined everything. I joined everything that they told me to join. Uh, And of course, these were all the places that they had joined, 
And what do you um, mean you joined everything? Oh, I, I joined the Association of Women Lawyers, the Academy of Florida Trial Lawyers, Executive Women of the Palm Beaches. I mean, you know, I just did everything and I joined everything that I was, you know, that I was told to that that they had been uh, involved in. And, and what was interesting was after a few years, I began to feel just, you know, kind of empty. Uh, first of all, I didn't really develop close relationships with the folks in those organizations. I don't know that I felt totally comfortable. I don't know that I felt totally welcome. It just didn't work. And also, it didn't really generate much business for me, which as a young lawyer in a private firm, this is something that you're expected to do, that you should be doing for your success is generate business. So I decided to change my strategy. And I began joining organizations and things, first of all, that I was interested in, and number two, that uh, related to me more uh, as a young African-American lawyer. And what happened was I developed, first of all, some wonderful friendships, which made me feel more connected, not as much alone. Secondly, I began to develop business for the firm. I mean, and business that the white partners were not in a position, the white male partners were not in a position to achieve because they didn't have these contacts. And finally, as I rose in these organizations to leadership positions and presidencies and so forth, this began to help my career in a much bigger way to be president of this bar association, do that began to really generate other things uh, for me. So what did I learn from all of that experience was sort of to thine own self be true, which maybe seems, you know, pretty simplistic. And why didn't you know that in the beginning? Um, but just trying so desperately to fit in to that mold uh, did not work for me, uh, given my different identities. In terms of my experience, it wasn't so much fitting in. It was so much more getting outside of the Asian community, which is 6-7% of the population. But I always ask, what about the 94% out there who don't know much about the Asian Americans? So that's how I started getting more involved in the mainstream bar, the Chicago Bar Association, the American Bar Association, the Illinois State Bar Association, as opposed to just limiting myself to the Asian American Bar Association, because we all know each other. But the ABA, the CBA, the ISBA, they don't know that many Asian American lawyers. Obviously, it's changed already, right? But that's the path that I forged and that I pursued with the understanding that, yes, I'd love to meet a bigger part of the mainstream, but at the same time, I want to bring them into a little bit of my world so that they get to see what an Asian American is like. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's when the business came because you're comfortable <laughs> in that and people got to know. When I left the, the government and I opened up my own firm, everybody started sending me immigration work right away, right? I don't know why, so I started practicing immigration because all this business was coming in, right? I am a different person everywhere that I interact with. So to your question, I think that you develop multiple personalities and different skills. Some have to do with your business, right? So of course, if I'm getting all this immigration work and Univision calls me and says, can you do an interview in Spanish? 
Absolutely. Because that is for my firm. I got to make a living, right? And then you kind of own it, right? And you work that way. But in the CBA, I, I was recruited to the CBA out of a need of, hey, we need more Latinos at the CBA. We don't have that many Latinos. And so I, I also saw an importance of my role as a Latino to open up for the people behind us. Judge Castillo, who's our chief judge here, was speaking recently about always being the first. And when you have that experience, you realize that you kind of feel like a larger duty to your community. So when I speak to younger lawyers, I always say to them, whether you like it or not, people in your community are going to look to you for leadership. And you didn't ask for that. It's not something that was conscious in your mind, but that is the way, in my experience, that America works. And to quote another judge here in Cook County, you have to pass the door and then you look back and then you grab the guy behind you or the girl in this conversation <laughs> and you pull her through the door because that's kind of paid forward. I'm sorry, Olympia. I just there was something that you said. Uh, I think that is worth addressing the distinction between being, in my case, the professional Latina or a Latina professional. I have no problem being a professional Latina. I would have a problem being the the wait. <laughs> what did you not confuse myself? But where somebody's just using me as here's our Latina. The minority on display. Right. And that's mm -hmm. what actually happened to me at a place that I will not name. But I remember I'd never been called into any meetings. I'd been kind of marginalized the whole time I was at this place. And all of a sudden, I got called into a funder meeting. And I'm like, why am I here? And it became clear because they were holding this agency accountable for not hiring minorities. And so suddenly, they were like, here she is. And not only did they bring me for that reason, this white male started to explain why minorities weren't coming to work there because they had debt because of this because of that so he was explaining away our entire experience so i do have a problem yeah i don't want to be a professional latina i want to be a latina professional did you guys want to add anything because you're relatively new yeah. <laughs> uh in the profession just just going off that um i think i agree with everyone and i agree that for me it's always been about fitting in it's often about fitting in. But for me, I think what's interesting is that it's fitting in in both communities. So here or in law school or in work, I'm a lawyer that's Indian. But when I go home to my family of engineers and doctors, I'm an Indian that's a lawyer. And it's, it's, it's different. And I remember when I wanted to go to law school, it was a challenge with my family and family friends just because it wasn't something that they knew and they thought that, you know, you don't know anyone in law, you're not going to have anyone to help you, how are you going to get a job? And so there was definitely discouraging attitudes about that at first, but I really feel like that's changing. I, I know I'm pretty new at this, but I do think, at least in the Indian community, that people are seeing that at the end of the day, you know, every, every job is important, but lawyers sometimes have the most direct effect on policy and civil rights, you know, gender rights, whatever it is. And so people are seeing that that's an important thing. And if you want your community's interests to be furthered, that's an important profession to be a part of. So that's definitely something I'm seeing more in the Indian community. And as a result, hopefully we'll be seeing more in the legal community because I, at least I really related to something that um, in the podcast, Fatima, something that she said was, if I kept waiting for a a Muslim lawyer to look up to, I'd have never met one. And that was kind of how it was for me. I didn't know any Indian lawyers before I went to law school. I didn't know any lawyers before I went to law school. I think that it's about fitting in, but I think it's about 
melding both communities. This week's episodes are sponsored by John Marshall Law School in Chicago. The school welcomes its new dean, Darby Dickerson, who will lead a diverse student body, faculty, staff, and alumni base. Founded in 1899, the school is known for practical legal training, innovation, and a wide array of graduate programs. I want to hit Leotis on this one. Can you specifically recount a time when you felt you were valued solely for the diversity that you offered to a group or an organization? Um, actually, I spent a lot of time avoiding putting myself in those situations. When I was first getting ready to graduate from law school, everyone is applying for jobs. I had the opportunity to go to a number of job fairs and visit a number of firms. And for people who haven't done that before, it's an incredibly surreal experience. Um, It's a completely different environment from the one that I grew up in. And something that a a lot of the attorneys here are saying is uh, something that really resonates to me, but I don't think has been put into direct words, is uh, the original question, I believe, was how do you manage your identity at work? And I think the thing that I'm hearing is is that I don't manage it. I, I make my work a part of my identity. And I think that's that's sort of been my approach to the practice of law. My first run in the law was significantly different from a lot of my peers. And, and as a result, it sort of shaped my perspectives of what a lawyer is and what it is that a lawyer can do. As a result of that, it changed sort of it changed sort of the direction that I would take in life and ultimately uh, the directions that I would take as I became a career professional. But ultimately, I think I think the key thing to take away is that I do not stand for being a token anything. My purpose is is to make sure that that's clear. That's the reason why I'm an attorney, um, is to make sure that I'm not a token and that no one is ever a token and no one ever needs to be. And I hear Leo on that one. Um, but I also sometimes have fun with being a token in any group or setting. You know, you go to an event and you see all white guys and my husband and I are the only Asians and we look at each other and we're like, we're going to have so much fun. Um, (laughs) Get to know as many people as we can. And at the end of the night, the more people you reach out, the more people know you. I think the more you're going to change people's perspective. So, you know, being a token can be bad, but at the same time, how you respond to it and how you can turn it around to your advantage can really have substantial effect. So Allison had mentioned that she used her identity to her advantage in drumming up business. Have you felt that way as being the token helped you get business? Yeah, I, I actually do. Um, and, and you're absolutely right, Allison and, and um, Kyle. You do use that. I guess the phrase that I'm going to use is in getting business, you do what you can to drum up the business, oh, obviously within reason, right? But yeah, as an Asian lawyer, I go to corporations and I go to meetings and a lot of people, a lot of corporations are going to Asia to go ahead and try to get business or, you know, they need connections in Asia. I will step in and say, I can go ahead and provide that connection for you. I may not be the lawyer that you would want to go to in Vietnam, but I have lawyers who I know in Vietnam and I could be the bridge. So yes, I have, I have used it. um, I've used it. 
and I make no qualms, and I'm not embarrassed to use it. When I left the Foreign Service, I came to work for the American Bar. And when I first started working, I was having a conversation with one of the advisors. And as I was having the conversation about the legislation we were working on, it dawned to me precisely what, what Aurora is saying, which is that advisor couldn't do what I did. Only I could do it. And so when it, it dawns on you, it's like, oh, okay, so because I speak all these different languages and I am culturally apt, and that is a skill that's unique to me, then I bring more to the table for that particular job. And, and then I started to value who I was as a person. I, I realized, okay, so they're not really doing me a favor. They really need me. And when you come to realize that and to value who you are, then you start seeing the potential that you yourself have. So, Leotis, so what are you thinking now? Do you, does that make you reevaluate anything? I think the fundamental issue for me is still that I don't want to work for a company because I am what I am. When you become a what instead of a who, that becomes an issue for me. And I hear what they're saying. I think the issue is, is that they're looking at it from a different angle than I am. I'm looking at who is it that I'm working for. And I think that they're answering that question, but in a different context. The people that they're working for are people in their communities, people who don't otherwise have that access, that bridge, as Aurora put it, those individuals who otherwise wouldn't have access to. And, and I think that's a very valuable experience, but I don't think that's intrinsically related to my links to my selections in possible career paths. I think that my purpose as an attorney is, is to act as that bridge between this otherwise inaccessible institution. However, I don't want to be, I don't want to be someone's ticket out of having to engage in that system. Mm -hmm. And you're really talking about, I think, being able to leverage your own agency. How can I use this as opposed to what the judge talked about being wrote, you know, trotted out like a show pony. You know, we have one in a box, we're going to go find her and bring her here to the table, right? So we're talking about being able to leverage your own experiences and your own social identities or your own benefit, whatever that cause is. I think it's like coming at it from a position of strength or a position of weakness. I mean, Aurora and Sal are talking about it from a position of strength. They bring something and they're like, you should recognize this because I'm bringing something versus somebody going, you know, just kind of using you. I don't want to be used. I want to be acknowledged. But I just think, like I said, this was something that you know, developed for me. And, and it may have been, uh, Prava was saying, I, I did not, you know, grow up with a lot of role models uh, in terms of attorneys or even professionals. My sister and I were the first professionals uh, in our family. But we certainly came believing that we were as qualified as the next. We went to fine schools and so forth. But you kind of get out in, in the world and particularly the white male world and they do make you feel, you know, they can make you feel a little bit less. And I believe that in a way, some of the work that is done laid the groundwork for the boldness uh, that uh, Leotis feels now. You know, I don't want to say he stands on our shoulders, but this was, you know, in a way how the earlier generation dealt with it. Now the younger generation is coming at it from another perspective. I'll also say that I think in addition to fulfilling our roles and recognizing, you know, our worth, I think what has happened in the process, what Salvador was talking about, is that the firms, the corporations, indeed even law schools, uh, are recognizing the, the value that you can bring as a diverse lawyer, as a diverse law professor, you know, what, whatever 
you're in. And, you know, it all does really translate uh, into the bottom line for the firm, not only the money, uh, but in the end, a better institution like you started out talking about. Now, Allison, you talked about how there seems to be this generational divide. I want to get Prava's insight on when you are faced with a situation such as we've spoken about here, how do you communicate to other people about whether and or why you feel marginalized based on being part of an underrepresented group in the legal profession? I actually really agree with what Allison said. I think I think it's different. I do think there is a generation gap. When she was talking, I just remember this survey that I read once, and I wish I could remember the source, but it was a survey of millennials and what they expect from their jobs. And it was like, they expect to make a good living, make a difference, and feel good about their jobs at the end of every single day. I mean, it was like unreal, the expectations we have. And honestly, though, but that's kind of how I feel. I feel I am entitled to those things. And I feel that I'm entitled to it just the same as any other gender or sex or race or anybody else that works with me. And I think that that's a privilege that maybe previous generations didn't have. I think that it was more of an, I'm not saying it's done. I'm not saying the battle's over or anything like that. I'm just saying that I feel like I have a right to those things. And I feel like a lot more people are saying that out loud. So what are some strategies then that you have for addressing that? If it sounds like boldness was a term that was brought out. And I feel that the younger, the younger attorneys seem to have a a bolder approach. So how do you go about doing that, though? I think the biggest thing is don't apologize for who you are or what you bring to the table. I mean, that's still something I'm working on and learning, so I'm by no means an expert in that. But like, for example, being a prosecutor, uh, we, we have a saying we always say, you know, there's there's no there's no crying at the state attorney's office, you know, which is like it's just a it's a stupid saying that we have. But I mean, it's it shows that there is an idea that you have to be tough and you have to make sure that you are the toughest, most calm and collected person in the courtroom. And I think that's really positive. But I also think something that's really positive the state's attorney's office has done is the expansive growth in gender hiring in my years, in my generation. Um, to have a female state's attorney, to make that an effort in the recruitment process, it just became more of an issue. And I think that's something I've had female supervisors. I've had, you know, since becoming a state's attorney, I've had gender and minority role models that I didn't previously. And I think that the fact that I see that allows me to be more vocal about it. And it just makes it more accepting in the atmosphere. And again, like I said, it's an ongoing process, but I do think it's improving. And as it's becoming more mainstream, I really believe that if I had a white male partner and he saw some type of racial or or gender related injustice, that he would say something the same time I would. I have a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old, and <laughs> for those who have it, it, it is an interesting household. But the point that I wanted to make is you mentioned about the entitlement, and you guys are very bold, and you're you know out there going for it all. But I worry sometimes how much of the millennials, how much of what you have not experienced, what we've experienced in our generation, is not transcending to the millennials, that the hardships, the discrimination, the diversity and inclusion issues, the women issues, how much of that is not really being transferred onto the millennials? I agree with you. I think that was a good point to make that sometimes you wonder if people understand the struggles and the difficulties. Judge, I had a question for you. Over the arc of your career, 
Has it become easier or more difficult for you to navigate the challenges of having multiple social identities? And, you know, and that's a hard question for me to answer because once you put on a robe, you know, it's an equalizer. You know, people might not like you behind your back. They might talk about you, but you're the one making the decisions. So I've been on the bench since 2005 and everybody loves me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, I mean, everybody's respectful. Everybody's polite. Um, So it's, it's kind of an insulator, you know, I, I mean, the last, when I was running for judge, that's probably the last time that I saw things that were kind of a little disconcerting. But, you know, once you put on that robe. What about your fellow jurists? Do they ask you for, you know, how many cups of coffee they should put in the coffee maker? I mean, do they do that? No. You know? We all have our own coffee makers. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, um, you know, I suppose, I mean, I'm very blessed. Um, my, I love my colleagues. You know, we're all sort of on the, we're all on the same page. So I don't, I don't feel any of that. So no, I, I see where you're going. But no, I honestly, I can't really point to anything since I've become a judge. You know, and again, I'm lucky because even now, my presiding judge really has had my back on, you know, certain things that maybe I felt like, okay, I did this and people are upset. What do you think? And he's like, it's what you wanted to do, right? You know, and I really, again, appreciate that. I mean, I'm blessed now because that would be the only place where maybe, you know, I had a presiding that wasn't, didn't have my back or disagreed with what I was doing. But, you know, honestly, the the robe is like an insulation. That's a really good point. I don't know. Yeah, I feel, I just feel that we still have so much work to do. I guess for me personally, in terms of has changed, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly less worried now about fitting in and, and probably more outspoken and less tactful about it. But, but I am still very troubled by, by the lack of, of, of progress. And particularly uh, when I look at women, while we do have Anita Alvarez, we are still woefully underrepresented in partnership levels in private firms. When you look at academia, and I've been in academia now for eight, eight, nine years, I was stunned when I went to my first conference and found women concentrated, women profs concentrated in the clinical areas and not in the uh, full professorships uh, or uh, at the dean level. So I I still feel that, you know, while things have improved and and I'm glad we have Prava to speak up about, I think there's still a a long way to go and we need to be mindful of that as we move forward because there's still a lot of work to do. I'm a younger attorney, so I don't know the sort of world that a lot of um, the other individuals sitting at this table grew up in or or came to their own in. Um, I I wasn't at a courthouse that was predominantly, or I, I am still at a courthouse that's predominantly male and predominantly white, but that had a, a less than 5% minority uh, or, or uh, women ratio. It's a different world for us. There has been progress. But that being said, I think that that's at some point, the progress starts to become your enemy, right? That the more progress there is, the the less individuals are ready to hear that there are issues. Um, going back to sort of the show pony thing that we were talking about earlier, it's like, of course, we're, we're integrated. Of course, we're now diverse. Just look at this. Just look at uh, just look at our Judge Mendoza's. Just look at uh, Salvador. Just look at these individuals who've made it. There are no issues anymore that we've come to this 
post-segregation era. And as a result of that, we don't really want to hear it anymore. This is the system that we have. This is the system that we want. This is the system that works. And unfortunately, it's a system that still disproportionately works for a very select group of individuals. That goes to what I had mentioned earlier about really the experiences that the elder, older generations have actually gone through and really those experiences that we've had, experiential learning, are we transferring that to the younger generation? But I also agree that, yes, we've advanced, but we need a lot more that we need to do. But I also worry that, you know, the people who have been very instrumental in us moving forward are going to be out. They're going to be retiring those who have been very good friends of ours on the top level are at an age where they could be done in the next few years. And if that's the case, then where do we start again? Who takes on the baton on that level for the women, um, for the minorities, for, for the younger generation? And I think that's the problem with the millennial thinking. My fear is the complacency this has already been resolved. And I'm like, well, maybe, you know, so far, like I said, it's been more bottom up than up down. And if the millennials are like, it's taken care of, then who's going to be, you know, bottom up? I, I totally get where everyone is coming from. I definitely don't think it's been taken care of. And I don't think there are any millennials, white, male, female, Indian, black, whatever. I don't think there's really anyone that thinks that everything's the way it should be. I guess the point I was just trying to make is that I do think that there has been significant progress. And I think looking at that progress and looking at the positive things that have come from it help further change exist. It doesn't feel like as much of an obligation. You can see that it's working successfully in a system. And I think it's it's worth noting. And I think that's kind of where I, I'm coming from. I know two Indian judges. I know one Indian state's attorney. Like, there's definitely a lot. Uh, that needs to be done. And uh, I can certainly understand the reservations or the fear that the baton won't be passed. I think that maybe we approach it in a different way, but I don't think that the issues are forgotten. Yeah, I don't know how the t- baton is is going to get passed, but, but I do think there's enough social conscience in the millennials that when they see the injustice and maybe when they experience it, so maybe when she hits the ceiling or something, you know, I think they will speak out. And I think, too, that they won't be alone. I, I think that their male counterparts will join with them. You know, my son, who is a millennial, I mean, really almost all the professionals in his life have been women, <laughs> you know, women doctors, women vet, you know, women dentists. I mean, you know, he doesn't really, really uh, see the, the gender in that same way. And, and even my students, you know, I, I am so encouraged by the gentlemen who want to be involved in the raising of their children, right, who want paternity leave, who talk about these things, who back in the day would not uh, have mentioned that. So, so I do think that the social conscience of the millennials uh, gives us uh, some hope for the future to carry on the torch. Definitely think Allison raises an excellent point about our social consciousness. It seems to me that you guys grew up in an era where there were rights that you didn't have and that you wanted and that you attempted to get and oftentimes succeeded. 
we grew up in an era where you guys have already gotten us those rights so that it becomes that much more evident to us when those rights are being denied to us. And I, I think that's sort of where our social consciousness is being derived from because it's that much more poignant for us what these issues are when uh, we're being divested of a thing as opposed to being denied. And I want to thank all of our participants today for a really good discussion at John Marshall Law School in Chicago. Next week, we will be discussing solutions. I'm Olympia Duhart. This episode was produced by Cal McEntee, music by Brad Kemp. Thank you to Kimber Russell, Marissa Olson, Ashley Miltite, Karen Ulrich-Stacy, and Susan Poser for your help. Women in the Law is a production of Law School Transparency. To learn more about LST, visit lawschooltransparency.com. To learn more about this mini-series, visit lstradio.com slash women.